1: Well, hello there. Welcome back to Dr. Giles Yo, Choose the Fat. I'm a geneticist, so when I'm not in the kitchen cooking up a mean beef brisket chili, I'm at the University of Cambridge asking why some people are larger than others and trying to keep neurons alive in a dish. I spoke to fellow geneticist Adam Rutherford a couple of episodes ago about how we as a species haven't had time to adapt to our modern food environment, and that's what's fueling obesity and other diet-related illnesses. One of the biggest and most recent changes is the advent of ultra-processed foods. That's what I'm going to dig into today with doctors and presenters, Chris and Zan Ventuligan.
2: The human body has a homeostatic mechanism for weight, right? Like we, you, we maintain our temperature, we maintain our water concentration, our salt balance. And this food seems to, because of the flavorings, because of the softness, subvert all the normal signals, the hormonal signals that tell us to stop eating and that we've had enough.
1: Now these guys are the perfect people to get into all this with because Chris recently made a BBC show called What Are We Feeding Our Kids? which saw him eating a diet made up of 80% ultra-processed foods and, well, his body didn't thank him for it. Alongside gaining weight, Chris reported anxiety, depression, loss of libido, his brain even showed signs of changes seen in someone addicted to drugs. Since then, he's been on a mission to get his identical twin brother, Zand, to give up ultra processed foods. You'll find out how that's going in just a moment. Chris, Zand, and I are all scientists, so I thought it'd be best to start by clarifying what we actually mean by ultra processed foods, which, by the way, we end up affectionately referring to as UPFs.
2: Well, there's a formal classification, which is kind of widely accepted around the world. And for reasons that I think are increasingly difficult to understand, we don't ever think about this in the UK. But there's this Nova Groups 1 to 4. So Nova Group 1 is whole foods or minimally processed foods. So that's food you'd recognise. I mean, do you think it's fair to say, Charles, all our food that we eat, no matter what we eat or how we eat it, is processed to some extent, unless you are wandering through a forest and you pull a fruit off a tree everything has been bred you know and uh, uh, modified over millennia you know there's nothing we don't eat really no i
1: think you're right i think bananas have to be spritzed. they're they as far as i know they're transported green and they, they, then they, someone has to spritz hormones on them before they turn yellow exactly
2: so-, so everything is processed to a degree but minimally processed so milk is a good example it's pasteurized it's, it's heated up it's homogenized it's all blended it might be have some cream removed but it's still it's still a whole food it's more or less as it comes out of the cow so that's nova group one and that stuff's all good then nova group two is culinary ingredients so this is the stuff this is salt vinegar ah uh, okay oil spices spices i think would be nova group two uh, sugar and those things are, are very important and then three is processed food so this is food where where there has been a, a degree of Um, modification cheese is a good example of a processed food yogurt things like that yogurt butter come on we can do better than this but um (laughs) is canned food sausages so i would say it depends on the sausage but there are some sausages i would describe as processed a lot of traditional cured meat often just has the ingredient of ham and salt or pork and salt or you know might have some nitrate in it but these these are foods prepared using traditional methods so then the fourth group, the Nova Group 4, is the ultra-processed food. And there's a, there's a very long formal definition, widely recognised by the World Health Organisation, the United Nations, many, many governments around the world. It boils down to something in a packet with an ingredient on it that you would be very unlikely to find in a typical domestic kitchen in
1: any or restaurants, as far as as far as I understand as well, I think it's very difficult to. Yes,
2: yes, I, th- I think that's right. I think it's right. And it's been processed using industrial techniques and additives uh, that you don't have access to in restaurant or domestic kitchens, um, and it's very, very significantly modified. And this is the group of food I would, uh, in my view. That there is the most robust evidence is linked to a huge range of health problems, but most especially um, obesity.
3: Is is it worth just saying? Because Chris explained all this to me quite recently. I mean, of the three of us, I would make the least claim to be a a scientist. I suppose I have a lot of scientific education, but I don't I don't do a lot of research. And when Chris sort of sat me down and went, right, there are these four categories and Nova Group 4 causes obesity and here are the definitions and then Chris has recently set me on this project to just not eat any nova group 4 because of the evidence that it drives weight gain and 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 poor health. I really felt that the category had been somewhat artificially created. You said sort I of went well you're taking you know uh, all these ingredients just because it's not in a domestic kitchen, does that necessarily make it bad? Is everything that happens in a factory bad? And so I don't know if, if Chris, you want to just dig into that a bit more. I, I really felt resistance to it, going, well, okay, look, this has got this is a chew bar with five ingredients, and one of them's flavouring, but what's the big deal? Okay, it's got a bit of colouring in it, but what's the big deal? And it, it felt to me like, is it fair to say that it is a definition that has been reverse-engineered from how how do we get to nova group
1: 4 because chris i think you just did a um a, a, a tv show and so you've done a deep dive i mean far more of a deep dive than, than i would
2: say i would say and i mean this sincerely i am the world's leading expert by lived experience on ultra processed food because whilst this nova group 4 makes up 60% of our diet on average in the UK. I'm the only person that's ever deliberately eaten uh, an 80 to 90% UPF diet for a month and thought about it and interviewed experts like you like Kevin Hall like the, the like the people who came up with the definition the epidemiologists the metabolic scientists while I ate it. So I thought about every single mouthful. So I'm the smoker who smoked mindfully, you know. And that does give you a peculiar a peculiar expertise. So the the the, the definition actually came out rather arbitrarily. A guy called Carlos Montero in Brazil is a nutritional scientist and he noticed a really weird thing was happening. At the beginning of his career, in the late 1970s, he was looking at uh, nutritional patterns and his main the main problem in, in Brazil, particularly in rural areas, was malnutrition. There were d- deficiencies of calories and of nutrients. And as his career went on, there was suddenly this flip where obesity became... The dominant problem, but he was still seeing the malnutrition, and he noticed this peculiar paradox that people appeared to be buying less of the unhealthy, ing- the traditionally unhealthy ingredients. So they were buying less salt, they were buying less sugar, and they were buying less fat. And he couldn't understand them. So, what was... so
1: as as like dripping beef dripping, or or, or right, they weren't buying butter. Right. They weren't buying those
2: Nova Group Two ingredients, mm. but they were eating more sugar. And they were eating more fat and they were eating more calories. And it was coming from these ultra-processed food. And he read the work of um, the journalist, Michael Pollan, who, uh, you know, anyone who's interested in food will be aware of of Michael Pollan's work and his great distillation of all of nutritional science, uh, scientific advice into eat food, not too much, mostly Mostly plants. Did I get it right? You did. I I right. <laughs> so, and so Carlos Montero, he certainly, in his first ever paper where he comes up with this d- idea of ultra processed food, he does credit Michael Pollan with having contributed to the thought. Then Montero goes and starts doing dietary surveys and digs deep into the data and really sees when you control for other variables that consumption of this category of food is strongly associated with weight gain and other. Diseases, And then so this was that was 2009-10. Since then, there's just this really wide body of epidemiological evidence and supporting the idea that as nations eat more of this food, as individuals eat more of this food, it seems to be associated not just with obesity, but metabolic disease, cancer, depression, diabetes, quite a long list of, of the problems of modern life.
1: So what, what's interesting is you, um, Zan, you were just saying that, oh, Chris has sat me down. He talked to me. He's trying to get me to eat less UPF. Um, I interviewed another set of twins, Lisa and Alana McFarlane. They were, used to be known. They were hedonistic Glaswegian DJs. Um, um, but then they became the gut stuff. Anyway, that's not the point. My point is they were identical twins. But then they, they were telling me that as children, one of them ended up with arthritis. Okay, and the other one didn't, and so there were obviously differences in the kind of illnesses which they got, and so now I have another set of identical twins in 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 front of me I mean, is part of the reason why Chris is telling you that you should should eat less is because th- do you have a more unhealthy diet than than, than chris do you have other uh, uh, are you at risk of other diseases than chris
3: Yes, so i, I yes, I mean I, I suppose the simple answer is that I weigh more than Chris. I probably weigh twenty kilos more than Chris, and I think that's the biggest weight difference between any set of twins in the UK ever recorded. It's not an enormous, you know, if you sort of saw us standing side by side, which you have, you know, we don't look ridiculously different, but twins do tend to be pretty similar Mm -hmm. in terms of weight. And Mm. so um, I suppose the weight was the obvious thing. And then as you get older, you just go, oh, carrying carrying extra weight. And, that you know, that isn't going to be good for him. I'm carrying it around my middle and central adiposity, as you know, much better than me, is really bad for you. And then I got ill with COVID and got a thing called atrial fibrillation, which is definitely not it's definitely made worse by being overweight and covid's been made worse by by being overweight and so that there was probably some additive effect there. So yeah, so I'm I'm less well than Chris. So I think that sort of drove it, but also there's the the other thing that of course goes on in a family is that once you have an experience. you're an evangelist for it. And Chris sort of went, look, I, <laughs> I did this diet. and He became the ex-smoker. This, 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 this ru- the- yeah, 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 yeah. The religious convert, the you know, the person who's seen the light. I mean, there's nothing more annoying than those people in a way, especially when they're your closest relative. Brother. Yeah, clone. And so, but it was very interesting that he
2: said to me, I can ruin this food for you. This was the, this, the bit that Zahn skipped is having gone on this diet for this BBC program about about child obesity, I ate the diet, spoke to you and then at the end of the diet I couldn't eat the food anymore. It became utterly repulsive it, it well, I didn't make any effort to quit it was it was I was one of those smokers who was just like I just didn't want another one it was it was like a hypnosis trick and there was one scientist from the Brazilian team who came up with the definition Fernanda Rauber and she said, Chris, you must not think of UPF as food. It is just an industrially produced edible substance. It is not food. And as I ate my fried chicken, you know, my, my microwave chicken nuggets that night, I, her voice was in my ears,
1: and it was as I slept at night. Microwave and, chicken nuggets. You don't even stick in the oven? Uh, Dude. It was just... that, so it's not only ultra-processed, it's soggy ultra-processed foods. Uh, you know,
2: it was it was really but I was also eating the fancy I was eating fancy stuff and I I literally I can I can spot upf a mile off now and I can't eat it anymore so I had this idea of you know can I send zand on an aversion diet is I feel I I have an. I had an addicted relationship with this food I had an addictive I know food addiction is is problematic and, and complicated but for me, that was true. And I felt like, for Zan, that was true. So maybe if I could get him to quit, quitting might be
1: easier than moderation. And, and has it been a success, Zan? Has, has Chris made it, been able to convince you to stop eating it?
3: Yeah, the, the,
1: yes, is the short answer. And it's interesting
3: that there have been a couple of times where I've not um, not fallen off the wagon, but through sort of habit and lack of concern, have ended up ordering myself a big takeaway full of ultra-processed ingredients. And um, because I've got, I mean, sort of for a legitimate reason, right? Like I've come in from work late and the, I haven't gone to the shops and I haven't got anything. It was all a bit unpredictable. It's always and, a reason. But, but it has been surprisingly, on the two occasions I did it, the first time I thought, oh, I'm not really enjoying this. I don't think I've ordered the right stuff. And the next time I thought, oh, Chris has really ruined this. Th- there was one moment that was really good and we were eating a particular kind of crisp which comes in a tube, it's a famous thing. You can get, you know, there are lots of different brands of them, but you know they're sort of uh, very regularly shaped,
1: curved. Yeah, they're not they're not slices of potato that have been exactly. I, d- these, I don't mean normally formed potatoes exactly,
3: and they they come in a tube. You can get the lid off, and you typically take out a whole one and put it on your tongue and crunch it up. And so we were having a, a sour cream and onion, or a sour cream and chive, or something like that. It was one of those flavors that I quite like. And so Chris said, okay, well, eat this, you know. And I sort of said, well, that's fine. That's what I expect. I've had them before. And then we crumbled them, turned them into into sort of flakes. And instantly they were less appealing. So you kind of go, okay, the big acoustic stimulation of putting the whole thing on your tongue and getting all the flavour coated all over your tongue at once was removed. And then you've got these little crunchy things which aren't as appealing. And then we he crumbled them further into powder so that they were just a sort of sour cream and onion. So hang on dust. a second. This is a true story here. This is this is actually this describing what, what this what is you, the experiment Chris, that Chris, Chris did to me to try and demonstrate that you can actually taste you think it's all different. Like some of its breakfast cereals, some of its puddings in a tin, some of its uh, ready meals and pizza and nuggets and stuff. Some of it's in restaurants, you know, so so I feel like it's a very diverse category of food. And Chris went, no, 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 no. And so you end up with powder. And the powder at that point is like a salty, weird sort of chemical flavoured powder. It really doesn't really resemble the original thing. And then he added a bit of water to the powder. So you have a soup made of this potato, sour cream and onion thing, like a slime. But this is stuff that's wildly popular. People serve all year round. You go to someone's house, they'll open a tube of these things. You know, these are very common popular foods. Just the slime is totally inedible. Mix it with water, turn it
1: into a paste. It's appalling. So are you are you saying that therefore how these foods are constructed and put together? Because that's what ultra-processed foods are, right? They're not a slice of a cow uh, necessarily mm. or, or anything. They've been they've been assembled in somehow, like these, like these crisps you're talking about. I guess the question is, why are they bad for you per se? Right? Is is it is it because the way they construct it in order to make it in one form, it tastes delicious. In another form, which is in effect, you've just crumbled it and added a bit of water, it then becomes inedible. Why are ultra-processed foods bad for us? I guess that is the that, that is the question.
2: So the, the hardest thing for, for anyone, and I, I've had lots of meetings trying to explain this to people, the hardest thing for anyone to get their head around is that it's not because they are full of salt, fat, and sugar. So they are very calorie-dense, and that might be a reason. Kevin, This guy, Kevin Hall, who works at the National Institutes of Health in the States, did an experiment where he got 20 people, 20 volunteers, locked them up for a month, and they, in random order, started either on an ultra-processed diet or an unprocessed diet. But the diets were matched for salt, sugar, fiber, and fat. So they were totally identical. And they were also equally delicious, as rated by the participants. And the people on the ultra-processed diet ate 500 calories more per day it was just a huge amount. So there was a very measurable effect on weight just in one week. And what he showed and what's been backed up by the epidemiological data is that it is not to do with the fat, the salt or the sugar, which is heresy in nutritional terms. Like, we, you know, when we're eating, we know that the, the calories come from the sugar and the fat, largely a contri- contribution from the protein. The salt makes it delicious. Uh, the fibre helps it go through. And if you lack fibre, that's bad. And so surely it has to be those things, but that doesn't seem to be the case when you adjust for them. And so there is some quality of this food that drives excess consumption and dysregulates the way that we have evolved to control appetite. So maybe the best way of thinking about it would be the human body has a homeostatic mechanism for weight, right? Like we, you, we maintain our temperature, we maintain our water concentration, our salt balance, and we maintain our weight. And for millennia, essentially for the entirety of human evolution and all other animal evolution, everyone sits at a healthy weight and you don't eat too much, you don't eat too little. And it's not because there's no food around. We've had excess calories available to us for a very long time. Suddenly in the 60s and 70s, this ultra-processed food becomes common and it's our childhood, isn't it, where it really starts to take off and we get the obesity crisis. And this food seems... To because of the flavorings, because of the softness, because of the emulsifiers, for reasons we don't understand, subvert all the normal signals, the hormonal signals that tell us to stop eating and that we've had enough. And so we can just keep eating.
1: So what's interesting is actually a colleague of mine in Yale, uh, Dana Small, Professor Dana Small from in Yale has been studying. so she she's a brain imager. Okay. And she studies um, so you, you're by looking at the brain image and then she does things like uh, pe- people are gambling for something or people eat something, addictive behaviors. And what she did, was well, she did a study, um, it was a two-part study. She was looking at, um, one, our human beings' ability to judge how many calories there were, what the energy content of a specific food was. And she picked three types of foods. She picked foods that were high in fat, foods that were high in uh, carbohydrates, okay, and foods that were high in fat and carbohydrates. And what she did was she then, we said, okay, guess the number of calories. Just have have a crack. And so human beings, as it turns out, are very very good at roughly judging how much energy there is in in foods that are high in fat, like the, like the beans in the jar, or a, yeah, ex- exactly like that. But the but but humans are very good. So you know if you, if you the, the the predictions were very close, humans are less good at judging how many calories there are in, in in high carb foods in a potato. Okay, they go ah, uh, you're thinking I don't know. Whereas the moment you mix the fat and the carbs, okay, within which in nature doesn't occur very often, okay, as a, na- as a natural thing, we had zero idea. We had no idea how many calories were in the food. But the, the amazing thing was then when she started scanning the brains as we were eating this. So look, eating feels good. And, and so it tickles the part of your brain, the hedonic part of your brain that makes you feel, ooh, this is lovely. And so fat, ooh, lovely. Uh, uh, carbs, Ooh, lovely the mix of fat and carbs, it was not additive. It was synergistic. Suddenly you had this explosion like a Christmas tree. And so what happens is our brain is almost tuned in to these high fat carb mixed together foods to go, (gasps) A, we don't know how many calories we're eating. B, it lights up the brain. And I think a lot of these ultra processed foods are going to be high in fat and carbs together as part of the formulation.
2: I think that's right. They are very palatable. They're very calorie dense per mouthful. But there is this intriguing thing, and I've become a real, um, through speaking to the scientists and just through my own experience, I really think you can make a fatty, carby meal at home. I mean, you, you know, I know how you cook. I, I can make you a lasagna covered in cheese, the carbs in the pasta, put a bit of sugar in the in the, the ragu. Uh, you know, I can make you that at home and we can all eat it and it will not drive significant weight gain, especially in a child. By nutrient-matched microwave meal from the store from the freezer section and it will drive weight gain Especially in a child, now, adults are
1: difficult because we're all we kind of sort of know what we're eating. This is this is it. So. Well,
2: also, but adults you can go to quite remote places, remote communities, and they're often adults who are a little tubby, you know. But you know, children really, really overweight children are are a real abnormality. So I think I, my my interest is is more in there. are the, New
3: phenomena. The, there are they're
2: mean? a very very new phenomenon. So so I guess that's the. The fat and sugar mix is a crucial part of the equation, but it's not the whole thing about ultra-processed food. And one of the best examples of that, I think, is zero-calorie drinks, which have, which have no calories, they've just got sweeteners, that at best do not promote weight loss. And there's a, there's a significant amount of data showing that they promote weight gain. And so that that's that's your kind of entry into going. Oh, there's some weird stuff here. There's there's a magic sauce that is very hard to understand. When the zero calorie thing makes you gain weight, and that is part of the, the I think, messing up with the the homeostatic
1: mechanisms. There, there is another paper I read actually that I've just now that that has just come come to mind about this. This was done before the concept of ultra processed was formulated by Carlos Montero. Um, but what happened is these scientists, they did an experiment in which they fed, in effect, an ultra-processed cheese sandwich to, to people versus a wholemeal bread with a slice of cheddar, okay? Cheese sandwiches, and matched it for calories, okay? So this was pretty much exactly the same, calories, and then they did the, cross- the crossover control and then measured their... Energy that they gave out. So this is so-called diet-induced thermogenesis. The amount of heat that's actually chucked out because our body is actually breaking down the the, the, the product. And what they found, well, they didn't use the word ultra-processed, but I'm assuming store-bought white bread, um, um, with a piece of. It f-
2: has to. It has to be. It's impossible to buy a loaf of sliced that, white that is, bread that is in not. A that is not. Bag. That is not. It, it, it doesn't UPS. exist.
1: It has to be up. And what they found was that you ended up spending more energy taking apart the less processed cheese sandwich Mm. than you did, you know, something like nearly 50% less energy was spent in exactly the same food with exactly the same number of calories. Your body has to spend more energy to take apart wholemeal toast and a slice of cheddar than white bread with that plasticky cheese. I mean,
2: I think about this the whole time when I'm preparing food for my kids. Now I do more home cooking. It costs loads of money. It takes up a huge amount of time. And there's loads of chop, chop, chop. And I'm, you know, grinding and stirring in the pan, and it's immense. Just getting the thing to the plate is hugely calorific because I have to be the, the factory machines.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm.
0: But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: So, can I play devil's advocate here for a second? Is there anything good about ultra processed foods? Because clearly, we got 7 billion people going on 8 billion people in the world. We need to get people fed. Ultra-processed foods, well, let's look at what the, the positive aspects, okay? Um, they are cheap because they're industrially produced. They have long half-lives, uh, not half life shelf-lives. Now, now I'm sounding like a nuclear physicist. They have long shelf-lives and they're easily transportable, which means that you can transport them, you, you, you know, into random places and keep people fed. Surely that is a positive thing about ultra-processed foods.
2: I just want to resist you so firmly on every single point you're making. Um, uh, uh, So in terms of the number of people on the planet, the single biggest source of carbon on the planet, other than the energy industry, is the food industry. The reason for that is the way we produce ultra-processed food is we, and I saw this with my own eyes in Brazil, you chop down rainforest, you grow soy or palm, you industrially extract the proteins and the oils, you hydrogenate them, you modify them, you ship them around the world, burning more carbon, you turn them into these formed products. You're also grazing industrial beef on the former rainforest and you're mechanically extracting all that, you're flavouring it. And you are turning it into safe food. It has very low nutritional content. So what we're, what we're now seeing globally is this, this syndemic, this synergistic pandemic where we have rising obesity rising malnutrition and climate change all going hand in hand
1: can i can i just tilt um, once again once again playing devil's advocate because this is the otherwise it's a love circle and no one wants to listen to this but but the question the the question is price because ultra processed foods are cheaper and kevin hall's study does point this out then you end up people who are underprivileged lower socioeconomic class who are they have no choice because they have no time, they, they have less money, et cetera, et cetera. And so they are more likely to buy these ultra ultra processed foods. So I guess my question is, what do we do about that? How how do we try and fix the problem of privilege and access to the food that us middle-class people will have no problems in cooking and chopping and all these things? But if I have no time to cook and to chop and to and to do things, how, how do we- If you don't have
2: freezer space, you can't batch cook. If you don't have mm. a good knife, if you don't have space in the kitchen, you may not have a mm. kitchen and you certainly won't have time and money. So you need a total food system overhaul. You start I really strongly believe that you you have to start with the recognition that ultra processing is the primary driver of particularly child obesity. You just that's where you start. Is you go this is the evidence now and we have to recognize this, we have to label packets. Once you do that, other things then become Clarified. You don't ban the food, you don't raise its price, but you introduce subsidies and promotions and incentives and tax relief and marketing campaigns and public health campaigns. It,
3: it, it's worth saying that if you give a community information, then they can solve a lot of their own problems. And I think looking for top-down solutions to the, the way that people feed themselves when it's so cultural and it's so grounded in you know local issues, then you will have individual communities saying we would like to put a tax on soda versus other communities say, no, no, we don't want a tax on fizzy drinks. But what we do want is to campaign for better supermarkets or um, home economics lessons in schools or something like that. There are all kinds of different ways of approaching it. The issues that you raise about starvation are really fascinating. And I, I worked in one famine in my life in Sudan and you have this sense that people are starving and there isn't enough food and there's nothing to go around. And that this is the image of global suffering that we were fed throughout our childhoods. In fact, there has never been a famine in a democracy, That's and right. famines That's right. frequently occur at times of food abundance when market failures mean that small portions of the population are excluded from the food market and so you can get large numbers of people starving but not the entire country starving simply because traders it's totally wrong to say simply because but one of the driving forces being that if food prices are doubling every day if you're a food trader, you hoard your food, and therefore you uh, have less food availability to a certain group of the population. But actually, if you look at the kind of the, the great famines of the 20th century, frequently it is only a small portion of the population that are excluded simply because they can't they can't obtain the food that is actually abundant even within that community. Um, and so, so the kind of image of the the starving child that is used frequently to promote a belief about the vulnerability of the food supply and about global health and the the kinds of problems that exist in in the world is actually um, a very very beautifully
1: misleading lie. That that child is put is is underfed because his family can't afford the food. So we talk about uh, these UPFs and we think we think burgers, pizzas, hot dogs, and what have you. Now there are a smaller group, I grant you, but nonetheless a smaller group of UPFs, ultra processed foods, which appear to have a halo of health. And and so these are the ones where the food gurus will post, you know, with their um, plant-based milks, um, which by definition is UPF because there are milk obtained from a plant, Um, you know, or faux meat burgers and what have you. So I guess, what are your thoughts about these UPFs with great PR? Because, you know, no one would claim a hot dog as a good PR and so therefore that's that, that, that's an issue. But I'm telling you, plant-based milks, uh, uh, faux meat products, those have great PR. Yeah, come on, Chris.
2: I interviewed an amazing food writer called B Wilson and we, we were trying to come up with a definition of UPF. And she said, what about anything with a health claim on a packet must be UPF.
3: Walnuts, come on, walnuts would say something about heart health. Doesn't
2: have a health game on the packet. i got a packet of walnuts. Uh, may, OK, maybe it the says... Pistachio the pistachio
3: marketing board are always market. trying to f- flog you something. <laughs>
2: look, come on, come on. It, big it, nut. Yeah, what the, the big nut is going to come to you now. Look, I've got a pack of, you know, raw, unsalted walnuts downstairs, and it's, it just says walnuts, and it probably has got something. But it hardly says, you know... Full of rich dairy goodness, or, you know. Okay, I concede
3: the graphic designers have not really gone to but, town on
2: but, the packet. But you see my point. I, th- I think it's almost, uh, uh, I would say it's almost a law that a significant text health claim on a packet does indicate ultra processed food. But explain why it's bad for you, Chris. Explain why it's bad for you. The evidence is not that this particular product is bad for you. It's the eating pattern. But the question I would ask is one of the points about ultra-processed food is it's been processed with a particular intention. And Charles, if you come to my house and I make you this this fabled lasagna, I'm making it with with, with love in my heart. I w- and my purpose is to nourish you, to, to forge a bond between us so that we can promote more podcasts or whatever. <laughs> you know, but uh, you, there's there's that sort of sincere intention. The purpose of the microwave lasagna is profit. And so the best way of making money from food, I mean, in this country, we have far, far too much food. We throw away most of our food. The best way of making money is to make people eat more of your food. And so food that drives over consumption is going to be profitable. So almost through a sort of iterative process, I can't see how a marketed food designed to be appealing could not be bad for you in the sense I I think it would all have to drive excess
1: consumption or it simply wouldn't sell and the business would go bust. So one of the annoying things which I find some food gurus say is please replace the chocolate bar with a banana which annoys me slightly because sometimes life demands a chocolate bar and sometimes life demands a banana. So can we make a better chocolate bar? Can we have a chocolate bar with more nuts in it, a uh, uh, more fiber in it? So so can we take can we make a UPF item of food better so that if you are in the mood for a chocolate bar, you can have a healthier UPF chocolate bar.
2: It could possibly be done, but I'm not very interested in UPF reformulation I suppose. I just feel like if it's been ultra processed the the better thing to do is to reorganise the food environment. But the whole ad- notion of giving anyone advice about what to eat, I, I hope n- you haven't done it. I hope neither of us have done it. I don't want to tell anyone what mm. to eat. I'm just going.
1: Like I'm trying to say, oh, here's the ever-. But I
2: don't think I did. In the end, no, I didn't. No, 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 tell no. You I'm what- just checking. I'm just
1: checking. And, um, and your answer, Zan. What do What do you think? Can you make a better chocolate bar? N- no, I, I think if you want if you want the chocolate bar, I, I think the
3: company should have to tell you that it's not very good for you. But I think if you want the chocolate bar, you should have the real chocolate bar and not something that's impersonating a chocolate bar. So maybe it's, I mean, I think there are chocolate bars which are not UPF if you've got your single estate, organic, like there are chocolate bars with not much in them other than sugar and cocoa and I don't know exactly what's in a chocolate bar, but you could get a very rarefied chocolate bar probably wouldn't do for you what a kind of candy bar from a big manufacturer would do in terms of that thing that you need at that moment and if it's the the middle of the night and you're working a night shift and you're really tired and you just want that thing I guess there's a world where I go well look I'd rather you just had that and knew it and it said on it this is Nova Group 4 and you knew what Nova Group 4 was and you just go well that's going to be the thing that I'm going to have today and the same what and and that having an impersonation of the thing may just cause more problems.
2: Yes, the health halo is almost more dangerous. It creates that kind of moral hazard where you go, oh, this is healthy. And it's like, no, it isn't. It isn't The, the multi-grain, ancient grain loaf is still as ultra-processed as the Mighty White.
1: You might, you Literally, I genuinely think you might as well just eat the Mighty White. So clearly, at the moment, we're supposed to be emerging from lockdown. How have you guys eaten through lockdown? Have you eaten better? Have you eaten worse? Because at the moment, my son is downstairs uh, making me dinner. We're recording this in the evening, making me dinner. He's making pizza. The fr- you know, uh, He's made the dough and what have you. I'm, he's 20 years old. So let me tell you guys, all the investment <laughs> it, uh, does come back and pay off at some point. So, so, so <laughs> have you guys uh, eaten better or worse through lockdown? Uh, very much worse, which
3: surprises me because I quite like... So I do not have... A, I would not have ever said... I was a guy with a huge problem with UPF, but you don't need a lot of it in your diet to add a lot of calories. Um, but I quite like cooking, but actually the combination of the chaotic amount of work I had to do, plus being ill, plus being alone, which is quite depressing actually to cook all the time for myself, plus the lengthy queues at the supermarkets meant that my food delivery bill sc- skyrocketed, along with a significant amount of weight gain. So I, I did not do, yeah, illness, laziness, misery and work conspired against me. And and Chris?
2: Well, I had this weird experience of midway through lockdown. I had this intense weight gain over four weeks eating ultra processed food for the program and then entirely quit it. And I tell you what that weight takes time to shift you know you i mean you you know we've talked about this but we, the human body is incredibly efficient at maintaining a store of abdominal fat so through simply avoiding ultra processed food as a form of religion i now eat fairly well but you know it's the constraints of, of time and everything but i am pretty good i'm pretty good yeah
1: chris and zand thank you so much for chewing the fat with me Charles, it's so nice to speak to you thank you thanks a lot for having us giles If you're already eager to learn more about the relationship our bodies and minds have with food, find that subscribe button on whatever platform you're on right now to make sure you're back here next week with me and another absolutely brilliant guest. And if you just can't get enough of the Giles, Chris and Zand loving, well, you can hear us all nattering away on their podcast, a thorough examination with doctors, Chris and Zand addicted to food over on that show. We chatted about why some people respond to stress by eating and whether or not food addiction exists. There are also more thoughts about UPFs in my book. It's called Why Calories Don't Count. And there's a link to both the hard copy and the audiobook in the show notes. Still to come in this series, a real celebration of food that nourishes the soul. But next week, I'll be chewing the fat with Spike Mendelssohn.
2: Do you ever get hangry? So imagine having that feeling every day of your life. What stress that does onto your body. Are you going to be a happy human? Are you going to walk around the planet trying to better yourself? We're going to end up pumping out is people that are, aren't happy, that are depressed. And the society is just going to be a struggle. And, and that that's why we should care.
1: Thank you again to Chris and Zan Ventolican. To my producer, Nushka Tate for Orion Publishing Limited. And to you for listening. I'll catch you very soon.